Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Shireen Hamza. We've got a special episode. We're adding another installment to our growing library on the history of the Indian Ocean in South Asia. This is something we're really trying to bring to the program in the months and years ahead with Shireen taking the lead on a lot of this. Shireen, it's great to have you. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, as part of the team doing all this. And um, what we're actually going to be talking about in this episode is uh, connections in the Indian Ocean, both historical and uh, kind of taking them up to the present day looking at how this, uh, sp- this space has been connected throughout history and uh, seeing how those connections have either endured or, or transformed. Absolutely. This wasn't always taken for granted, and you have some major books published not too long ago, like the 1985 work by K.N. Chaudhry. It's younger than I am. <laughs> that literally set out this as a, as a field of study, and um, now it's really thriving in places all over the world. The field of Indian Ocean Studies, I guess you could say, it has been growing. And um, especially recently, the historiography of the Ottoman Empire has actually become a, a growing mm-hmm. interest mm-hmm. because after all, the Ottoman Empire uh, had a lot of territory that bordered the Indian Ocean and Absolutely. presided over some connections, some mercantile connections. that certainly predated the establishment of the Ottoman Empire, but nonetheless were part of its administrative, uh, legal, and economic sphere. So in the studio with Shireen and I today, we have a, a scholar of the Indian Ocean world, Nadi Mahajan. Nadi, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me, Chris and Shireen. So happy you're here. We're going to introduce Nadi more thoroughly later on in the podcast. Uh, but what we're actually going to do first is uh, hear from another one of our contributors, Jeffrey Dyer. We're going to hear a short interview that we did with Jeff at a podcasting workshop that Shireen and I put on at Boston College. We'll hear Jeff's research on the Indian Ocean during the late Ottoman period. We'll get some thoughts from Nadi, who's coming at it from a more ethnographic or anthropological viewpoint. And then uh, we'll hear about Nadi's own work on uh, the space of the Indian Ocean today. So stay tuned. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. I'm Shireen Hamza. Today we've got a special podcast. We're welcoming back Jeffrey Dyer for a short interview. Jeff Dyer is a PhD candidate at Boston College, currently completing a dissertation titled Ottomans in the Age of Empire, Consular Diplomacy and the Indian Ocean Frontiers of the Arabian Peninsula, 1870-1914. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. I want to mention for our listeners that we're recording today before a live audience. This is actually a first for us. We're at the uh, Podcast in the Public Humanities Workshop, sponsored by the Department of History and the Institute for the Liberal Arts at Boston College. Hi, everyone. Say hi to the people who are listening at home. Got a lot of podcast fans in the audience and a lot of Jeff Dyer fans in the audience. Um, Now, as we mentioned, Jeff is a former guest on the Ottoman History Podcast. He appeared in an episode during season two uh, about Ottoman connections with the island of Zanzibar during the 19th century, and that was in 2012. So, Jeff, let's take a trip down memory lane. Here's Jeff Dyer talking about Zanzibar. Slavery was definitely a big part of the island's economic history and social history. Like I said, the island itself is very small, but it's that 
main entryway to the economies and the societies of Central and East Africa. So it was a place for traders from all over the Indian Ocean, from as far away as Southeast Asia, to come with the monsoon winds, gather in Zanzibar, and have that kind of access to these, these very large markets. So, Jeff, do you remember that conversation? I mean, we were so young at that time. It feels like a very long time ago. We Almost, were in... Yeah, five years ago in Istanbul where you, when you were doing your research. So um, now we're kind of hearing the other end of the, the tunnel. Jeff is at the end of his research now. And today we're going to talk about not Zanzibar, but we're going to go to the other side of the Indian Ocean in Bombay and, and discuss uh, the subject of Ottoman consular officials Now, a consul is a kind of diplomat for our listeners, one typically based at an embassy or consulate, who is charged with looking after the affairs of citizens, expatriates, uh, and protégés of a particular government in a given region. Uh, Consuls served as officials in European states for centuries, and during the 19th century, we see the Ottoman Empire increasingly employing consuls and managing consulates as well. Uh, But before we get to that, Jeff, uh, some of our listeners will know that throughout the Ottoman period— The Ottoman Empire, or at least Ottoman subjects, merchants, uh, and the like, were important actors in the connected space of the Indian Ocean that linked the Middle East to various regions uh, from East Africa all the way to Southeast Asia. But with the rise of European capitalism and especially British imperialism in the Indian Ocean during the 18th and 19th centuries, uh, the Ottomans sometimes fade from the historiographical picture a little bit. So tell us why that's a mistake. And, uh, you know, tell us what was the connection of the Ottoman Empire to the Indian Ocean Basin uh, during the 19th and early 20th centuries? Well, it's a problem that's not limited to the Ottomans. Uh, Thomas Metcalf in 2007 commented that with in the historiography of the Indian Ocean, as you get to the 19th century with the onset of the colonial period, you, it was as if this bustling sea full of vessels was emptied away mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know left with largely a British lake. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, you do get that feeling in, in some of the earlier historiography. Uh, clearly, this was not the case in reality. Um, yeah. So what we've seen over the last 10 to 20 years is a, a good deal of scholarship showing the contributions of South Asians, of East Africans, of people from Southern Arabia, the Red Sea, the Persian Gulf, as far as Southeast Asia, uh, local people who we're clearly continuing to engage in in commerce and, and traveling throughout the region and continuing these long-distance linkages that have come to define the Indian Ocean in history, that this continued throughout the 19th and, and 20th centuries, and in fact, in some ways, increased. For the Ottomans, it's interesting because they are not involved in the Indian Ocean in the same way that I, I think... Um, it gets privileged in some of the history. You don't see uh, this large Ottoman state naval presence. You don't see the same kind of uh, state-sponsored trading companies that you would see for European imperial actors, right? But because the Ottomans uh, from 1870 are reasserting their control along the coasts of the Red Sea down as far as the, the mouth of the Red Sea, the Babylondeb, as well as uh, along the upper Persian Gulf coast from Basra down to Qatar, they, they, in fact, have a fairly large coastline that they, mm-hmm. is under their direct provincial control. Coastlines that are very closely connected to the uh, trade and migration networks that, that crisscross the Indian Ocean. And so we're, we're seeing Ottoman subjects very much involved in this world. And the Ottomans are concerned uh, uh, with protecting their subjects and, and being involved and in, in pursuing the opportunities that come with that. 
This is great, um, Jeff. It's very connected to a lot of folks working on Gujarati traders and other people who continue to, as you said, um, exist in this very vibrant world. In your own research, you point to Hussein Hasib and his consulship as a time which could serve as a turning point in this history um, in terms of Ottoman policy about the Indian Ocean world. So can you explain more about why you do that? Absolutely. Uh, Hussein Hasib, for, for those that don't know, was the first official Ottoman consul in Bombay. He was appointed in 1870. He uh, resided in the city and, and served there uh, for the Ottoman government for a decade until 1880. Uh, he, he's a watershed for me because he is the first official Ottoman consul. He's the first Ottoman civil, uh, civil official, the first Ottoman bureaucrat that was sent to reside in the city. Mm. And really the first case of it in the region of the Indian Ocean. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who represented the Ottomans in Bombay before that time? Their interests, I guess. Mm-hmm. It, it was, in fact, a, a local merchant named uh, Mirza Ali Mehmet Han. He was uh, described in his appointment documents as the owner of the Mazagan dockyards in Bombay uh, that housed the P&O Steamship Navigation Company. So uh, he was very much uh, integrated within right. English colonial society within Bombay. Uh, not an Ottoman subject, did not draw a salary, uh, was not trained by the Ottoman government. So he was someone who they could look to to represent their interests to a point, mm-hmm. uh, but perhaps right. not the most reliable. Yeah, having a loyal person like Hussein Hasib, who, for, for whom the Ottomans come first, is a big shift. Exactly. And Hussein Hasib was coming from the Terjume Odessa, the the translation bureau within the foreign ministry. Uh, He is, I I believe, born in Istanbul. He he is an Ottoman subject, trained by the government, responsible to them uh, for his position, his authority within Bombay, but also for his salary and for his budget, for really, you know, his his whole presence there, uh, Mm -hmm. which definitely gives the central government a bit more authority and a bit more power over what he's doing to represent their interests in the region. So a lot of the scholarship on the Indian Ocean world is focused on mercantile connections. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to ask if uh, this figure of Hussein Hasib, as well as other figures you study, are within firmly within that realm or if there are other kinds of connections across the Indian Ocean world with the Ottoman Empire. There are certainly other connections. The the commercial aspect is is very important. It's one that comes up in a lot of the Ottoman appointment documents, the uh, edicts put out by the foreign ministry or by the palace that are are nominating uh, these officials to to go to the the distant ports like Bombay, but also like like Singapore, like Batavia, uh, the center of the Dutch East Indies, present day Jakarta, uh, as far away as Manila. There, there's in fact you know quite a few offices that come up during this time, and. Typically, the first few lines of those edicts will explain why the government thinks that a consular office is necessary. And I was surprised going through those documents at how central commercial affairs were, because most of the scholarship that exists on these up to this point has focused on uh, religious linkages hmm. of the Ottomans to these okay. areas, that it was, in fact, uh, an outgrowth of their pan-Islamic policies in Asia uh, in the aftermath of the Russo-Ottoman War, that they were in fact seeking to make up among Asian Muslims what they had been losing among uh, territory and, and subjects in southeastern Europe, mm. in the Balkans and, mm-hmm. and the Greek islands and places like that. So commerce is definitely a big part of it. I think there are a, a couple other factors that also come into it. One is security. The Ottomans uh, from 1870 in fact have a very large coastline along the Red Sea and the Persian Gulf that 
uh, you know, it, it's tapped into these these migration networks. It's it would be fairly easy for those that that you know wish them harm uh, to make their way into Ottoman territory by these coastlines. So they're they're trying to keep a closer eye on who is coming and going from Ottoman territory. Part of that is also through migration controls, like passports and visas that they are trying to implement in this period. The consuls are a, a very important part of that for them mm -hmm. because the, the Ottoman diplomatic officials are the only ones deputized to give those visa documents to foreigners looking to come to the Ottoman Empire. And since there were no embassies in the Indian Ocean region, the consuls become the de facto intermediary for most people trying to come. Now that was that was for commercial reasons. That was for education, for for study at Al Azhar and other uh, places around on Mecca and and elsewhere in the Ottoman Empire. That was a big part of it was the Hajj. Uh, that there's in fact a a large growth uh, in in the number of people coming from South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Africa, and beyond in this period. Uh, partly because of the widespread use of steamships and the growth of uh, you know these kind of uh, passenger networks that, that uh, pop up with, with the use of steamships and the growth of European colonialism uh, around the Indian Ocean Rim. And we've had a couple episodes uh, in recent years on the, the transformation of the Hajj during the 19th century. I'll mention mm -hmm. Michael Christopher Lowe's episode yeah. looking at the Arabian Peninsula, but also our interview with Eileen Kane about the Russian Hajj, mm -hmm. or what yes. she calls the Russian Hajj, of people who are Russian subjects coming um, sometimes by land, actually, partially, uh, to the Ottoman Empire for the pilgrimage. Um, this is a abbreviated interview, so we're going to have to cut it short. But of course, you know, we do look forward to your forthcoming publications on the subject. And I wanted to give you the chance to tell the listeners at home a few titles that you would recommend for further reading uh, on the history of the Indian Ocean during the 19th and 20th century. Of course, I'll, I'll give you just a, a few here. The the volume uh, edited by uh, James Galvin and Niall Green, Global Muslims in the Age of Steam and Print, I, I found very useful. It, mm -hmm. it provides you know diverse uh, a range of, of entry points into the, the Indian Ocean and other areas. Eric Gilbert's Dows in the Colonial Economy of Zanzibar mm. is something that I've taught in my class. It's, it's something that you know, I found very useful. Um, Eric Teleokozo on Southeast Asia, uh, up and coming scholars. Uh, you mentioned Michael Christopher Lowe. He's now at Iowa State. His, his dissertation on this was, was excellent, as well as uh, at UVA, uh, Fahad Ahmed Bashara, working on credit networks between the Arabs in the Persian Gulf and East Africa and the Western Indian Ocean. Uh, there, there's quite a bit out there. So I'm happy to give a list so we can put up on the website as well if you'd like. Yeah, we will have a bibliography on our website for our listeners. Jeff, thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. It's great thanks to so have much. you back on. Uh, thanks to our audience here at BC for being very patient with us and listening uh, to this uh, abbreviated interview. Glad to have all of you here. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you, Donna Sajdi, for setting this up. Thanks so much. Thanks to our listeners out there as well. It's been an enjoyable conversation. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned for future episodes on the connections between South Asia and the Middle East as well. Um, we're going to play out with a clip by the band Rajas and our friend Rajna Swaminathan, a clip titled Tangled Hierarchy.
We just heard from Jeffrey Dyer and about a little bit about his work on uh, the Indian Ocean during the late Ottoman period. And we've got our resident ethnographer of the Indian Ocean, Nidhi Mahajan, in the studio, as we said before, to uh, give a little bit of uh, additional context to what we just heard from Jeff and sort of expand on some of the ideas that were introduced uh, in that interview. Well, thank you so much again for having me. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, you know, I was I was struck by uh, how Jeff was talking about this classical idea that with with the coming of the British, the Indian Ocean turns into a British lake. He was referring to Tom Metcalf's work as to, you know, um, Tom Metcalf's work where he looks at how actually some of these conti- uh, these connections continue and are reconfigured in the 19th and 20th centuries. And what's interesting is that I think what the ethnographer's perspective on the Indian Ocean does is it allows us to see how these connections continue and are reshaped even in the contemporary moment. Um, Historians have typically suggested that Indian Ocean connections fade with the rise of nation states. People start to look Mm -hmm. inward rather than outward. But some of these connections are still alive. A number of the things that Jeff brought up had to do with different kinds of networks that existed and the role of religious networks, pan-Islamism, and mercantile connections. Are these networks somehow persisting or would you say that things have transformed to the point where those traveling across the Indian Ocean have reformulated why and where they travel? In many ways, you know, this, uh, the, the connections that exist today, some of them are commercial, some of them are, you know, just kinship, kin relations mm. across, you know, East Africa, South Asia and the Middle mm-hmm. East. Mm-hmm. Um, those still live on, right? And the locations, the exact locations of them may shift, but in the imagination of the people who travel amid, uh, in the space, it still lives on. So for instance, not just Gujaratis, but other communities in East Africa will still say things like, we came in Dows. Like, this is a very common trope. And they may be industrialists now, but the sense that they have is that this history still lives on in their imagination. But also... In more in, more empirically, because the Dow trade still actually functions across mm-hmm. the Indian Ocean in particular spaces. So it lives on um, in many ways, commercial, religious networks, certainly as well, and in the imagination of diasporic communities, I would say. Yeah. And one of the things that I was curious about in listening to Jeff and Adi, I don't know what you can say about this. I know you yourself are from Bombay, and so... Like, I was wondering, where was the Ottoman consulate in Bombay and uh, what sort of space was it adjacent to, for example? This is probably something that Jeff would be able to answer if we actually had him here. But, you know, it made me think more about the the historical transformation of the city spaces that are adjacent to the Indian Ocean as well. That's a great question. Now, you know, I'm going to be going to Bombay soon, so I'm going to go hunt for this Ottoman consul. I mean, wh- one can easily imagine. Uh, he, Jeff was talking about the Mazgao dock, yeah. Um, yeah, right. Which is, I mean, it's still it's still this vibrant sort of largely Muslim community that lives there today. Yeah, I have a lot relatives of, who live there. <laughs> so Mazgao in general is this area that where which is you know Bombay is still fairly segregated in terms of Hindu communities and not just Hindu and Muslim communities, but even 
within Hindu communities, it's fairly marked where certain kinds of um, religious and other uh, communal communities <laughs> live. Yeah. Um, so it's it's a still a very cosmopolitan city, but at the same time, space is marked in very sort of you know particular ways. So Mazgaon is still this um, you know middle class uh, Muslim neighborhood, but also there is the Mazgaon Dock, which interestingly enough is not very far from Haybandar, which is which was until two thousand and eight an operational Dow Dock. Mm. So you can imagine that this world can you know kind of lives on, even though the Ottoman consul is no longer there. But you can imagine that you know the in in the landscape of Bombay, that what's going on in more contemporary uh, times is sort of drawing from this longer history. Yeah, and that also makes me wonder. I'm, we should have Jeff back on here sometime to, to answer some of these questions. Like if this new professional Ottoman consul was sort of more connected to the European communities, the other consuls who lived in uh, Bombay at the time, whereas we presume that these uh, earlier representatives who were essentially local merchants would have been connected exactly to these communal networks in, the, in this semi-segregated cityscape. Yeah, absolutely. So maybe now we can shift gears a little bit and um, talk about Nidhi's own research, which will bring us back across the Indian Ocean once again to uh, the spaces of East Africa. Nidhi Mahajan is a Mellon Sawyer Seminar postdoctoral fellow at Tufts University. She'll also be beginning a position in the Department of Anthropology at UC Santa Cruz in fall 2017. Hey. Congratulations, Nidhi. Thank you. Not a bad place to be in the anthropology department. Uh, Nidhi has an ongoing book project entitled Moorings. It's an historical ethnography that examines interactions between participants of trans-regional trade networks and multiple regulatory regimes in coastal Kenya and the Western Indian Ocean. So in this conversation, we're going to be studying the Indian Ocean connections past and present through the figure of something mentioned in Jeff's podcast very briefly, which is the Dow, this ship that, that that's... Uh, D-H-O-W, Dow. It's a very distinctive kind of ship to use, especially in the Indian Ocean. And the Dow is, is, is the vehicle that forges a lot of these Indian Ocean connections, past and present. So, Nadi, tell us a little bit more about the history of the Dow and its role in Indian Ocean mobility and trade. So let's just begin with understanding what the Dao really is. Yeah. And right, because the Dow actually, the term Dao itself didn't really wasn't really used until the 19th century when the British were trying to classify various different kinds of sailing vessels that they eventually called native craft or dows. So they actually look very different coming from East Africa, from the Middle East and from India. But I think in the British imagination, these were all clustered as the dow. Interesting. Um, yeah. And there's no one specific thing that defines a Dao, right? They used to, there have been debates about whether it's a Latin sale, whether it's, you right. know, the usage of, well, in the prehistory of the Dao or prior to the Portuguese, actually not the prehistory, but prior to the Portuguese coming into the Indian Ocean, these vessels were made without the use of iron nails. Mm -hmm. But then as soon as the Portuguese come in, nails start being introduced into the construction. So the Dao itself is, the term Dao itself is somewhat of a misnomer. Um, in actuality, the people who actually sail these vessels don't refer to their vessels as Daos. They refer to them 
with terms that have a much more sort of local usage. Mm -hmm. Can we hear some of those terms? So, for instance, in India and in Pakistan, actually, um, the term that's used for what is now what we would now classify as a DAO, in which I still use the term DAO in my own work, is Vahan. Vahan. Mm. In Kachi, it's a Kachi term. Another one would have been, uh, another one in East Africa is Jahazi. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I noticed in the Wikipedia article about DAOs <laughs> that I looked up today, um, that it's exactly as you're saying, it's, there's actually a lot of different vessels that are slightly different from each other and are used for specific purposes and have special names. And so it's interesting that the, the British kind of created this category of the DAO, which is just it's not a European vessel. It's a, it's a, the, you know, the quote unquote traditional vessel in all its shapes and forms. Yeah, they were great at creating categories. Can you tell us a little more about the field work you've done and the ethno- ethnographies that you've done with people who operate within these DAO networks today? The DAO today, like I said, it's kind of a misnomer to call it a DAO. That being said, these bonds now operate between Kutch and East Africa, actually, uh, primarily to Somalia, but also further down the coast to mm-hmm. Kenya, which is where I did my field work. I was very surprised in 2011 when I began my fee- my one-year field work uh, in Mombasa that an Indian DAO actually docked in Mombasa at the same time that I arrived in Mombasa. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It was very lucky. But they really use Mombasa as a way to get to Somalia, and what's going on in Somalia is that DAOs, DAOs are actually very important in in bringing not only food aid, but also transporting other kinds of uh, merchandise to Somalia. And that's because the operating course for container ships is much higher than it is for DAOs. Mm-hmm. And DAOs mm-hmm. operate typically, some, some of them use insurance, but a lot of them don't. Mm. And so their costs are lower. And with piracy in the Indian Ocean becoming so prevalent into between 2005 and 2010 DAOs kind of occupied that space but in more contemporary sort of term in more contemporary terms the reason why the DAO persists today even in the face of containerized shipping is that it can actually go to minor ports that container ships can't go to it can Mm. function in periods of insecurity Um, so the DAOs that I was looking at were coming from Kutch going to typically the UAE and then to Somalia and Kenya. It was kind of a naive question, but as I understand from the earlier historiography, these boats tend to move seasonally with the monsoon winds, which facilitate like rapid crossing of the Indian Ocean. Are those seasonal dynamics still the primary shaping force and sort of how the Dow differs from other types of shipping? Or are there other factors in play that sort of structure the... um, the rhythms that, that the DAO owners tend to follow in their right. trips. So, you know, these DAOs these days are not, they're not running on sails anymore, right? Mm-hmm. They're classified as sailing vessels because that allows them certain tax privileges, ah. let's, let's say, in, in India. But they're motorized. Interestingly enough, they actually use secondhand generators from container ships to run these vessels. So they still run, you know, it's easier even for container ships, actually, to work with the monsoons. Sure. But these DAOs can now also sail in the face of the monsoon winds. Mm. And there's always this question of, you know, for especially the DAO that I was looking at, they were very much interested in actually going against the monsoon winds because fewer DAOs would do it. And then they would 
have kind of um they would occupy a special place in sure. that yeah. port at that time could you paint a picture for us of you know your meeting with the people who are sailing these vessels and you know who are they do they all speak the same language do people get on and off at different ports so typically um there is no passenger traffic on these dows anymore and the crew you know from what i know uh, much of the crew from india comes from two towns in kutch um one of them is jamsalaya and the other one is mandavi and they're typically of two different communities one one is the badala community and the other is the vagher community and they're both muslim communities but then there's also some karvas who are hindus from kutch who travel on who sail on these um vessels as well and you know when i first began my field work uh, a lot of these kutchi seafarers you know they were both badala and vagher had never been to east africa before which is surprising mm. because especially a place like mombasa has a huge kutchi community a huge badala community mm-hmm. um as well and so for them to enter into the space meant immediately making contact with diasporic badalas and so you you know they arrive in mombasa this was a, a vessel from mandvi and have never been there before and are completely new to the place and the first thing they seek out are relatives um you know from from mandvi who have settled there say generations ago mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so typically the crew the, there would be 12 people 12 crew members and it's a very hierarchical um crew system basically there's the captain the nahoda mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. the nakoda yeah 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 um the serang or the foreman and then you have the engineer who basically deals with the mechanics of of the vessel the cook who actually has one of the most place one of the most important roles <laughs> um and then you have what are called helpers um and these are typically apprentices apprentices who kind of rise up in the in the hierarchy as they go along and they start at a very young age at the young age of 12 they start working and then climb up through the ranks Um so that's the typical system it's very hierarchical very sort of male masculine space right um but at the same time they find ways to kind of um what i found was more surprising was the ways in which they found and made the dao a very domestic space as well because mm. they're living on these daos for 9 months of the year they have wives and children and family back at home but they're away for 9 months of the year so what does that look like and what forms of camaraderie um and um exist in this in the space in this moving space mm-hmm. yeah. yeah and another thing that came up in our conversation with Jeff Dyer for those who are listening and didn't check it out we re- we do recommend you check out that conversation about uh the Indian Ocean during the late Ottoman period was this whole n- problem of regulation posed by these very nimble uh and small vessels that have their own special like legal classifications and that are very much embedded in local communities all along the Indian Ocean basin regulating and controlling those borders became an issue for the Ottoman Empire just as it had been in other ways for the Por- Portuguese and British before so to what extent are the regulatory regimes or the spaces in which we lack regulatory regimes in the Indian Ocean um the legacy of those earlier imperial connections or how has this changed 
That's a really good question. And that's actually what the book will hopefully be about. I think it's hard to talk about DAOs without kind of looking at how there's a certain discourse around them, right? In mm -hmm. that the DAO itself is, the term DAO itself is really a figment of the British imagination. There was, and you know, there was a vessel known as the DAO, I think in, in, the, in the Arabian Peninsula, D-A-U, but it came to mean signal all of these vessels precisely for regulatory purposes, mm -hmm, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, so with the Portuguese in the 15th century, you have the Portuguese um, attempting to control sea lanes in the Indian Ocean through, uh, through a system called the Carthage system, which was basically all vessels that were traversing the Indian Ocean required a pass, um, a Carthage for, for travel. And of course, the Portuguese, as we know, were not very successful in creating a monopoly over the sea lanes of the Indian Ocean in this way. But British regulation in the Indian Ocean, especially in the 19th century, as they were extending their um, their jurisdictional reach in the Indian Ocean, so to speak, um, took the form of really kind of trying to push these DAOs into a very marginal position. And one of the ways in which this happened was actually, surprisingly, through abolitionism. So through, mm. with the British trying to abolish the slave trade in the Western Indian Ocean, they came to associate all DAOs with the illegal slave trade. Interesting. And this posed a particular problem for the British, that how can you tell whether a DAO is a slaver or not? Because these DAOs are not, you know, they're not operating in the same way that... Um, slaving vessels in the Atlantic are operating, for instance. The enslaved would often just be crew on board the Dow, or they would be the wives and the children um, of people who were sailing on these Dow. So this posed a particular problem around regulation for mm -hmm. the slave trade. And with that, the British come to associate all Dows with the slave trade right. and therefore with illegal trade. And it's interesting, you can see how this kind of lives on in current discourses um, around the DAO, mm -hmm. especially in a post 9-11 context where in India, DAOs again have become to be associated with gold smuggling in the 1980s, especially. And now um, Indian government authorities have kind of suggested that DAOs are engaged in transporting weapons and people mm. around the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. And you see this not just with the Indian government, but you see it also in uh, security discourses and in reports from by the UN. Could you explore this difference in drawing lines around what is licit to transport, what is illicit maybe from the point of view of the state and from the point of view of the people participating in the Dao right. trade? For a lot of these seafarers from Kutch, right, when we talk about the gold trade, they have a very clear sense that gold, uh, that the gold trade, even if it was smuggling, that it was licit in their eyes. In their sort of moral economy, transporting gold is not harming anybody. Whereas weapons and even drugs now, that, that's a big part of the discourse as well, Drugs and weapons are a completely different sort of kettle of fish, right? Mm -hmm. Where they're viewed not only as illegal by the state, but also illicit by a lot of the seafarers. I see. So that's that's one kind of way in which the licit and, and the illicit and the legal and the illegal are marked. 
But at the same time, there's been, you know, all sorts of regulations in India, especially around which kind of ports these DAOs should go to. So, for instance, at the during the heyday of uh, Somali piracy, um, seafarers were instructed to not move to move between Somali, uh, move to Somali ports. And to them, this was a very sort of it was illicit trade, right? Yeah. To them, this was licit because this was actually the space that they could occupy is that this is where most of our revenue actually comes from, is from the Somali ports. And all they're doing in the Somali ports is transporting charcoal, mm. which is banned by the UN. The charcoal trade from Somalia is illegal in, in, in an international regulatory framework. But to the people engaged in this trade, it's licit. And therefore, this creates this very sort of dynamic way in which people are thinking about the licit, illicit, legal and illegal. Besides charcoal, are there other are there any other sort of licit goods that um, these traders are bringing in? So they're actually exporting charcoal from Somalia. But what they're bringing into Somalia, interestingly enough, is UN food aid often. So it's this very kind of dynamic space in which... Um, on the one hand, the UN has vilified DAOs for transporting charcoal, but on the other, UN food aid is brought into Somalia using DAOs. Wow. So they contract they contract the shipping to the DAOs. You mean it's, right? Okay. So this is this is a very sort of you know contradictory mm-hmm. sort of thing where in one moment the same DAO can be viewed as engaged in illicit and illegal trade, while also carrying UN food aid and therefore legal and licit um, goods. But they're also, you know, bringing in from Dubai, especially all sorts of other everyday quotidian goods like hardware, electronics, even cars. Wow. Um, Yeah. So it's everyday sort of everyday objects that they're bringing in, um, all of which are legal. Right. I mean, much of which is legal. (laughs) Yeah. So through through the DAO, we actually see sort of the historical transformation of how states and really international organizations as well seek to control and categorize movements uh, as either licit or illicit and how the DAO's operations in, in these persistent margins both point to what's changing in terms of the politics surrounding mobility, right. um, but also sort of the limitations of those politics and the impracticalities involved. Right. Yeah, that's a really good way of um, putting it. And I mean, this is a really old problem. You know, Johan Matthews' new work, uh, Margins of the Market, is grappling with similar issues in the 19th century. So we're seeing this kind of reemerge in, in, in the contemporary moment as well, where, you know, there's this, what Johan Matthews puts it as a framing out of certain forms of trade. Mm-hmm these sort of British categories of the Tao as being, you know, the singular thing that's associated with illegal trade has kind of lived on mm-hmm. in both national and international um, regulatory discourses or security discourses even. So we're, we're really dealing with multiple frameworks of regulation. One would be the various state regulations and going back in history, the regulations put in by empire and these systems are also sort of supplemented by or at play with engaging with 
the regulations imposed by moral systems of the people engaging in the trade itself. And the former set of regulations are maybe pushing this trade, especially increasingly of late, to the margins of licit trade. And to bring it back to some of the people who you interacted with in your fieldwork, the Kutchi sailors, they are sort of marginalized by the Indian state, or maybe the Indian state views them with suspicion. But as they travel across the Indian Ocean, they're interacting with people in the Kenyan ports and the Somali ports. Who are those people and how are they engaged in sort of a marginal space by their own nation states? Well, so, you know, a lot of these uh, Dow sailors and actually the Dow owners, right? The the sailors are just contract wage laborers oh. on these Dows, but the Dow's actually owned by... Um, community by by owners or businessmen who sit in ports like Bombay, for instance. So a lot of these ship owners have connections, both kin and actually friendship plays a big role in this too. Mm-hmm. You have a Kachi ship owner who's been doing business with a Somali based out of the UAE for over 20 years. And through that connection, this allows them to move to places like Somalia and Mombasa. And in Mombasa, for instance, I saw, you know, some of the, the traders there that were and the brokers there who were dealing with these Kachi merchants were of different communities. You had Hadrami Arabs, you had Swahilis. So they're really kind of interacting not just with other Kachis, but also with traders of of different ethnic groups as they're moving across these ports. And the, in the Somali ports, they're typically Somali merchants mm-hmm, that they're mm-hmm. grappling with. So you have them sort of interacting with different communities across these spaces. But what holds the network together is not just kinship, but also, I would say, you know, longstanding business contacts. And this sort of evokes a theme or a trope that animates a lot of historical scholarship on the Indian Ocean world, which is one of cosmopolitanism, imagining a world either proceeding or coexisting with a European empire in which people from all the way from East Africa to um, Southeast Asia are commingling in these in these port spaces. Um, do you find the word cosmopolitanism useful to your own work? Well, so you know the classic trope, as you say, is that these DAOs were you know these vessels that kind of enabled social interaction across the Indian Ocean and as historians like Abdul Sharif have argued actually enable the creation of a cosmopolitan world in the Indian Ocean i don't use cosmopolitanism in my own work to describe what's going on in the current moment mm-hmm. and the reasons for that is that i think we need to think in more nuanced ways about what what is going on in the in this moment where of course you have these seafarers who are you know interacting with Somalis with Swahilis with Hadramis but these interactions are very different from what was going on in the past Abdul Sharif's work has kind of shown that you know seafarers were marrying locally across these ports that they would have families in different ports that isn't the case anymore Mm. They still very much identify themselves as badalas or as bagirs mm-hmm, from mm-hmm. particular towns. They have wives or wives only in those ports. They might be doing business across uh, community lines, but 
a lot of other forms of commerce function that way as well. Right. So I think there needs to be another way to think about these connections that doesn't fall back on this classic Indian Ocean cosmopolitanism theme because a lot of it is also, um, I mean, the idea of cosmopolitanism implies some kind of inherent unity and a lack of violence. I think the notion of cosmopolitanism undoes, at least especially in this current moment, undoes the complications of movement in this particular moment, which is that they arrive at a port in Somalia and they can't actually leave the port. They don't even leave the vessel when they arrive at certain Somali ports. Wow, yeah. So their interactions are very limited and they're not, you know, interacting with communities in town. And in a place like Mombasa, they're able to arrive at the port and, you know, they walk the city and such. But at the same time, in the evening, they go back home to the vessel. So the vessel kind of um, is their mode of, their vehicle for interaction, but is also very much a home for them in these other spaces. They aren't creating homes in other ports. Right, right. Yeah. This is very different from maybe a scene out of an Amitav Ghosh novel in which right. the crew itself is multilingual and in their interactions in these ports, they are sort of carving out new relationships across the Indian Ocean littoral. And so this is, I think, like you're saying, quite distinct from the moment that you're describing now. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, a lot of them speak Kachi. They can often go by with Arabic, but a lot of them wow. don't speak Swahili or Somali. And in fact, a lot of Somali merchants may learn Urdu as a way to kind of um, continue these, uh, to communicate with these sailors. So it's very different from your Amitav Ghosh world right um and also these sea seafarers aren't working with other sailors from other parts of the world they're really working with sailors who come from often the same town that they are from right often with even family members interesting um so the dao is not this sort of mixed space it's very much identified with a particular town and to what extent that is a historical continuity or rupture uh is largely, at the end of the day, a product of the types of sources we have in order to understand what exactly life on the Tao was like right. many centuries ago, for example. So it's not just a problem of conceptualization. Ultimately, it's about the fine grain of ethnographic detail that's available to us as historians. So that's why as a historical ethnographer, your work is so valuable for sort of opening up our mind uh, about, you know, the history of the Indian Ocean and these spaces, these trading networks, these trading vessels. And uh, thanks so much for sharing your work with us on the podcast. Thank today. you, Nidhi. Thank you so much for having me. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in and enjoying this multifaceted nesting doll of an episode about the Indian Ocean past and present with Jeffrey Dyer and Nadeem Mahajan. I want to remind you that on our website, autumnhistorypodcast.com, we've got a fantastic bibliography compiled by our, by our guests that will give you um, many avenues for further reading and inquiry. And that's also a place where you can check out our other episodes related to today's topic. That's all for this episode. Thanks again for listening and join us next time. Mm -hmm.